All right, we're ready for Mr. Ken Rosenthal. I want to FT Ken Senior Insider right away. Go ahead. Do you mind? Yeah, hey, let me see if we're we got him. There he is. Ken, FT Insider. Ken, you ever get talking about autograph seekers? I'm sure you heard. Have you ever gotten mistaken for Tim Kirchin at all for an autograph or no? All the time. And <laughs> it's not just Tim. Sometimes people call me Buster only, uh, but oh, more okay. often Tim. And just to cut off AJ at the pass here. Yes, it's partly, I think, because Tim and I are roughly the same height. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you took it away. <clears throat> hmm? I thought it was because they look similar. That's why. I, I didn't even know. that They weren't the same All right. height. Let's continue <laughs> on here. <laughs> All right, Ken. Let's get to business. So, first yeah. off, the fresh news is from yesterday – Kike Hernandez signs with the Dodgers. They swing Manny Margot over to the Twins. And what do you think this does for both sides and why it made sense? The Dodgers wanted another guy to be in that super utility role like Kike will be for them. And he actually fit their roster better than Margot did. When Margot arrived in that trade with Glass now, it was always kind of a question whether he would stay. And once they got Teoscar Hernandez, it became even more of a question. So from the Dodgers' perspective, they had a great reunion with Kike last year, and they feel that he is going to be a, really an ideal fit for them, bouncing around the field, doing what he can do. And that's where he's had his greatest success. So it's a good move for them. And for the Twins, too, they've been looking for a player who – can protect them like Michael A. Taylor did in the event that Buxton gets hurt as a center fielder. Margot is a good player, as we know. And it's interesting, the Twins' offseason. It's been, much like Seattle's, influenced by their uncertainty with the TV revenue. And they've had to do some things to kind of compensate for that trade, Jorge Polanco, which was probably going to happen anyway with Eduardo Julian. But they have kind of had a sneaky good offseason in their own way. Nothing flashy. They've added to the bullpen a little bit. They get Margot now. They've got these Clefani coming over from the one trade. It's not anything like you'd confuse with the Dodgers offseason, but they've strengthened themselves, it seems. And in that division, the AL Central, until proven otherwise, they're the team to beat. Essentially, you're getting Margot to replace Michael A. Taylor. It might be another right. subject. I think Michael A. Taylor should be on a team already. But looking at what he did last year for this team that hadn't won a playoff series, all this twins, hoopla and everything, that's 21 home runs of a gold glove center fielder. Why can't the twins just bring him back? My, my, and maybe this is too player-centric of me. Why can't you bring this player back that is essentially going to be paid this, how it's working out now well, you're going to pay Margot. I know, you know, he's getting this deferred and that, or this paid by this team and that by this team. Why not just bring back Michael A. Taylor, who did so good for your playoff team? Margot is less expensive than Michael A. Taylor wants to be. Michael A. Taylor, from what I understand, saw the contracts for Harrison Bader and Kevin Kiermeyer, two similar players, right? Defense first guys who are really good in center field. Kiermeyer historically good. And Bader is fantastic as well. They each got, I believe, $10.5 million. Michael A. Taylor, for the reasons you just said, Eric, can say to himself, you know what? 
I'm that guy. I should be, if not at that level, then really close to it. And perhaps the Twins were not simply willing to go there. Now, the problem is, as we go deeper into the offseason, and we've seen this with players, the contracts are not as good as they were earlier. And maybe Taylor will come out of this just fine. The Padres are still a team that need outfielders. There are other teams as well that could certainly use Michael A. Taylor. But I don't want to say that he priced himself out because that's too harsh. But if you're Michael A. Taylor and you're looking at those guys getting that money, you're certainly thinking, hey, what about me? And that's a fair question for him to ask. Talk about a little bit of spring training. I know you're going back and forth at some places. Uh, has anything surprised you yet or it's kind of like status quo? I mean, talk to us about what you've seen at the dis- different places you've been and what surprises you've seen so far. Todd, I don't know that I would say there are any surprises just yet. It's so early, too. The games are just starting. The one thing that always strikes me at spring training, and you guys have all been through this, how even teams that you don't perceive to be very good think they're going to be really okay. In some cases, they think they're going to be good. And I don't want to pick on AJ's former team, but in White Sox camp, the day I was there talking to some people, I got a very good vibe there. From the players and manager Pedro Grafal, people are pretty excited. They think they've done some good things, kind of improving the bottom of their roster or their depth. And yet you look at the White Sox and you think, whoa, 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 wait a second. It's the White Sox. They're not a team that you see as a contender. And when I walked out of camp, I kind of had to check myself and say, whoa, just <laughs> remember who they are. It's not always going to be this happy for them. And who knows? Maybe they're the surprise team this year. Maybe it comes around for them and some good things happen. And who knows? Maybe they even keep doing seats if they contend. But I don't see it that way. But it just always strikes me, guys, how at this time of year, and it's the beauty of the game, that everyone thinks they have a chance. Spring optimism. Uh, such a such a beautiful thing. So you were also at Cubs camp. And I, we have a couple topics from Cubs camp. I thought the council story that you wrote in The Athletic is fascinating. We can get to that. But first off, mm-hmm. since we haven't had you on since the Cody Bellinger deal, and I know people can tune into fair territory for your thoughts, but for some back and forth action um, on this topic. So some people are like, ha ha, Boris lost. You know, he, he held these teams for so long and he usually gets the long-term deal that he wants. And if you look at the projections from many people that usually get it somewhat in the right ballpark, they were way off for the guaranteed total money. So do you think this is just purely about the cheapness of teams, mostly kind of chopping revenue this year or chopping payroll, I should say, or do you genuinely believe that there were trust issues based on how Cody Bellinger has been such a different player over the past few years and trusting that he would, you know, not revert back to what he was a couple of years ago. Scott, all of the above. And certainly the market was different this year because of the teams with the local television questions, because the Mets and the Padres weren't as active. Even the Yankees, once they got Juan Soto, they weren't a team that went crazy in free agency. They signed Stroman, of course, but they were perhaps less active than they might have been if they had not acquired Juan Soto. So you had those market forces at work. You also did have, as you said, the questions about Cody Bellinger. The average exit velocity last year was in the 22nd percentile, which means despite his great surface numbers, 
he had an average exit velocity that was better than only one out of five major league players. That, for whatever reason, well, there's a good reason, it alarmed teams. And I don't know what it means going forward. I don't know that Cody Bellinger should be penalized for that. We'll see this year, right? But that was a factor too. And then probably his expectations were a factor and his agent's expectations. Scott Boris, you hear all these things about how Boris wants this and that. He always says he never asked for a specific number, but the team certainly are under the impression that he wanted a a long-term big money deal for Bellinger. He didn't get it. But even though he didn't get it because of the one-year opt-out, Cody Bellinger can go on the market next year at 29 and perhaps still get the monster deal. We've seen this before with Boris clients, most recently Correa. Correa got the three-year $105 million deal with the Twins, opted out after year one, then signed the six-year $200 million deal with the Twins. And it would have been over 300 if the medicals hadn't been such an issue for the Giants and Mets. So it's not over for Cody Bellinger by any stretch, but the way these deals are measured by agents, by the industry, by everyone, is by the guarantee, the total guarantee. Bellinger's total guarantee is below where we thought it would be, where most people thought it would be. He has the ability to make that up, but he has to prove himself again. And maybe that wasn't the ideal circumstance. So we'll see. But Scott, there was not one reason here. There were a lot of reasons why it turned out the way it did. Tim, I'm disappointed in your uh, lack of respect and admiration for the White Sox. So, but it's okay, Tim. I Not get a lack it. of respect. It's just reality. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna we're gonna go to the other side of town, the north side. Craig Council, you wrote an article about him challenging the front office. Was the Cody Bellinger the first step to him challenging this front office and saying, "Hey, we're gonna make some changes and try to go ahead and win"? No, I don't believe that was the case. And what I wrote about was more situation of council coming in with his own ideas. And remember, for 10 years, they had Joe Madden and then they had David Ross, who had played under Madden and was essentially an internal hire. Council comes in from the outside. He's accomplished. He's done some things with Milwaukee. And he is someone who has strong beliefs about everything pertaining to baseball. The Cubs, when they hired him, Jed Hoyer said this in my article, they wanted this. They wanted someone to come in and challenge them, and they view it as a positive. And it makes for an interesting dynamic. It also is interesting the council's making $8 million a year. Jed Hoyer probably isn't making that much. And that changes things too. But as Hoyer told me in the story, what he did in his mind was the best thing for the organization. He couldn't worry about council being signed for longer or council making more money. But the bottom line is, in an organization, My belief is you always want people who challenge you, who come up with different things, who aren't simply yes men. And that's why the Cubs hired counsel. They didn't want a yes man. They wanted someone who was going to be giving them fresh thoughts on different aspects of the organization. Did the GM or president of baseball operations hire him or did the owner hire him so that he didn't have to pay quite as much money to free agents because, hey, look at what he's won with. Uh, We don't need to get the big-time free agents. I don't know that that was their approach. That was going to be their approach probably whether they hired Craig Council or not. They've been, for a team in the market of their size, a little bit more budget-minded than maybe you would expect. There's no question about that. But 
they did just lay out the money for Bellinger. They're not done necessarily yet. And I, when I say not done, meaning not just at this point, but going to the deadline, they could add as well. It was the president of baseball operations hire. And it was because, let's face it, Craig Council has tortured the Cubs in recent years. But that said, the owner had to sign off on it. I don't know, Eric, that they said, let's pay the managers so we don't have to pay players. I don't know that it was that linear, A to B. But council has done a great job of getting the most out of teams with lower payrolls. The Cubs saw that, and they want that kind of efficiency for themselves. Ken, I, I loved the article. S- sincerely, I thought the you know honesty from and the candidness from Jed Hoyer and from Craig Council was really cool. Um, you still got me? You okay? I got you. I'm here. Okay. Just making sure. Um, Oops. Sorry about that. So <laughs> no, no, no. All good. Making sure. I mean, we're always, we're always waiting for a potential breaking news item that we can get from Ken live on FT. But uh, so my follow up here. So first off, I loved how council said in, in your article, like I told them, if, if you're just hiring someone to run the bullpen, like, don't even give me a contract offer. Right. And then, you know, on on some of the challenging and dissension that they promote here with council, I was curious to find out more about their internal system and, you know, their proprietary statistics and program that they have, which every team has their own version of that. Council comes from a team that's pretty um, analytical. So I thought the Cubs were that way too. Am I off on that front? Like I, I didn't know Jed Hoyer was a little more old school and that, that you said the stat system they had had some kind of more traditional stats that maybe other systems that other teams don't have. No, they have an advanced system. What Council was talking about in the article is that he saw, for whatever reason, on their player pages, they had some old school stats. And he basically said, why are we doing this? These are not predictive stats. These are not stats that we're going to have use for. And basically, it goes back to when they invented the Cubs system. I guess going back 10 years or whatever it was when that database came to be, that's what they had. And they never changed it. So it's the kind of thing, it's not a big deal. But he asked, hey, what are we doing? Why is that number there? And that's why they took it off, or at least they addressed it. So it's not that the Cubs don't have an advanced analytics situation going on, and it's not that their database is lacking. They think they have a really good database. It's just he saw things differently because he had looked at the Milwaukee one for all these years, and the Cubs people have been looking at their their own stuff for all these years, and he suggested some things that might be more pertinent and relevant to where they are or what he wants to do now. Okay, I like that. That's interesting. And let's finish with this because there was, of course, a lot of appreciation for your dudes of the week, the Oakland A's fan that the fans that ran their own festival. As, as the one person here that can finally talk with, you know, these guys usually say, "I played, I got the experience, I had the experience, I was there in <laughs> Oakland to experience Fan Fest." This is my thing that I can talk as an expert about. Ken, one of my best memories in my career. The way that that, wow. that event was operated, you know, obviously, like from a game perspective, when people ask me, I'm like calling World Series, WBC, whatever, but right. But but th- this Fans Fest was really incredible. Thousands and thousands of people, the nicest, most passionate, most appreciative, most genuinely upset 
group of people that truly don't understand why they're being treated a certain way. And instead of just using it all as negativity, of course, you playfully have like the cell and the Dave Cavill um, actor who was doing a great job kind of with the fake renderings and all that. But on the other side of it, they were like, look, we have tons of businesses here. Everything from merch, food, whatever was sold out. So I just thought it was just such a bang up event. And they were like, truly, you're not getting the attendance numbers because they're kicking us in the face right now for the past few years. So well, I just wanted to throw that out. <laughs> I love it. I love that event too, Scott. And I love that you guys were there to chronicle it because no one else really was except maybe some local media. And the beauty of that to me was that it was a grassroots operation. That the A's weren't going to have a fan fest. So the fans essentially said, you know what? We'll do ourselves. We'll do it ourselves. We will do it and we will show our passion. And that to me is what is getting neglected here by the A's, by Major League Baseball. They say that fan base is not good, they don't show up. No. As I said on Fair Territory, give that fan base a competitive team again and give them a new ballpark. Give them a place to go that is not as depressing as the Coliseum. You watch. You see if that market at that point does not show up. I believe that it would. And I believe that a team in the Bay Area under those circumstances, new ballpark, competitive roster, will be a lot more viable and important for Major League Baseball and lucrative for Major League Baseball than a team in Las Vegas. We're not going to see it that way. MLB certainly is not going down that path. And maybe the Vegas thing blows up in some fashion. I don't know that it will. But at the same time, the statement that was made by the Oakland fans was a very powerful and positive statement. And it was basically, we're here. We haven't gone anywhere we have just been waiting for something to support. And unfortunately, they're still going to be waiting. And they're going to dominate opening day headlines when they have that game. And there's 30,000, 40,000 people outside of the ballpark having the biggest tailgate party, right? It's going to be like the Florida Georgia tailgate that, that AJ yeah. loves. So look out for that hey, as I'm well. I'm telling you, they're all planning it. You know? A whole season of it would be great. A whole season of protest, honestly, because that's what the A's mm -hmm. deserve. And that's what they have created. They can talk all they want about this poor fan base, how it's terrible and this and that, but they have created the resistance, so to speak, and the resistance is quite impressive, to, from my opinion. And they're not following the team to Vegas. I asked a million people too. They're like, no, we'll move on. Not. We got the Oakland Ballers. We'll root for other teams. They're like, we're, we're not going to root for that guy anymore. So our sport will miss some of the most unique, passionate fans if this all goes through. So anyway, felt, felt like it was worth reporting from the scene and letting you know how special it was because truly it's one of the best memories I've ever had in my career. So Ken, great to catch That's up awesome. with you as always. Yeah, thank you. Um, and we'll talk to you, I think, later this week. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ken. And more from Ken on A's Fans Fest and handing out the Dude of the Week award to the entire operation out there that ran such a cool event, um, as we've talked about it quite frequently. The Bellinger you know, pillow contract bridge, whatever you want to call it. Um, Jed Hoyer's gamble and how that worked out with the Cubs and, and a lot more that you can see on the screen or if you listen to the pod right now. Just hit up Fair Territory if you're listening to the pod. Go to that pod page as well and check it out once a week. Ken usually releasing it on Mondays.